Hello everybody and welcome to the culmination of the evolution of Superman month here on All My Movies. We started off talking about Superman the movie, we moved on to Superman 2, both the Richard Lester and Richard Donner cuts. Last week we talked about Superman Returns starring Brandon Routh and this week we are talking about Man of Steel directed by Zack Snyder starring Henry Cavill in his first appearance as Superman. Of course both Snyder and Cavill have been very much in the spotlight this past week with the release of Zack Snyder's Justice League. League, restoring the original directorial vision to the film that was released in 2017 to not much fanfare. We'll be talking about the development of this version of Superman and what it meant to the current iteration of the DC Universe, as well as some fun looks behind the scenes. But before we get to that, I want to thank you first of all for watching and listening to the show. If you're watching us on SEN right now and you want to subscribe to the audio feed, you can find all that information down in the description below. How you can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, all all that fun stuff. And if you're listening to us and you want to watch the show, stay tuned until the end of this episode because we have some very exciting new announcements about the future of all my movies. But I'm going to tease you with that right now. Let's talk about Man of Steel and then we'll get to the exciting news at the end of the show. As far back as 2007, there were reports that there was a sequel in the works to Superman Returns and that that sequel would be called Superman the Man of Steel. And originally, everybody involved with that 2006 film was expected to return, but one by one, key creative forces started to depart. In 2007, writers Michael Doherty and Dan Harris dropped out of the project. Following that, Brian Singer moved on to other projects, and in 2009, the contract for Brandon Routh, who was thought to be the new Superman for a new generation, expired. Superman the Man of Steel all of a sudden was left without a star and without a creative team. And after nearly two decades of development to get Superman back on the big screen, Warner Brothers found itself once again at square one. The genesis of 2013's Man of Steel lies with writer David S. Goyer and producer Christopher Nolan. While the pair were meeting on ideas for what would eventually become The Dark Knight Rises, released in 2012, Nolan said in an interview that Goyer pitched him on an idea for Superman that he liked so much he brought to the executives at Warner Brothers. Goyer was brought in to pitch the idea and it was sold as a screenplay opportunity for Goyer and a producing opportunity for Nolan, but he was very clear that he did not want to direct direct this movie. In the fall of 2010, Warner Brothers found the director they wanted for the film in Zack Snyder. And while this was the first time Zack Snyder was stepping into the DC Universe proper, this was not the first time he was directing a comic book film or even a DC property. Snyder had previously helmed 300 and 2009's Watchmen. And while his take, particularly on Watchmen, was still being very hotly debated amongst fans, his style was unquestionable. One thing that all parties ruled out was a crossover between this new Superman and the existing Christian Bale Batman. Superman was going to exist in his own universe while also leaving open the possibilities to interact with other DC heroes and villains, but not existing heroes and villains. They would all be recast from the start. This was something that David S. Goyer in particular was very adamant about. Executives at Warner Brothers had been thinking for years about developing a Batman versus Superman movie. There was one that actually very nearly came into being right around the time that Superman Returns was 
established. And the LA Times actually did a story about this development process in 2005. And David Goyer told them, quote, Batman versus Superman is where you go when you admit to yourself that you've exhausted all possibilities. It's like Frankenstein meets Wolfman or Freddy versus Jason. It's somewhat of an admission that this franchise is on its last gasp. This is a bold statement for Goyer, but it makes sense because he was eventually tapped to create a universe where Superman exists on his own. But there's also a little bit of irony because just over a decade later, writer Chris Terrio would share screenplay credit on the film Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice with David S. Goyer. But Nolan, Goyer, and Snyder weren't just interested in building their own solo universe. They also wanted to take a new look at the Man of Steel and knock Superman off the pedestal that so many stories and comic books had put him on for decades. He always was that sort of magic golden god up on a hill you couldn't really touch. What he and David were able to do was make him relatable in their story. You could say, if I were Superman, that's what I would have done. This trend isn't just confined to Superman. It was really started largely by Christopher Nolan with Batman Begins and The Dark Knight in 2005 and 2008. And it was part of a systemic process in Hollywood of demythologizing comic book heroes, largely because movies in the mid and late 90s like Batman and Robin had proved that audiences weren't exactly clamoring for the cartoonish depictions of superheroes that may have been succeeding in the past. Creators everywhere wanted to humanize the superhuman, and there's no better superhuman than Superman, whose journey from godlike figure to mortal man just like the rest of us is rife with creative possibilities. Zack Snyder didn't have to look too far to help find some frontrunners for the Man of Steel. As a matter of fact, there was one actor named Henry Cavill who had made it deep into the casting process for a previous iteration of a Superman film, McGee's Superman Flyby. We talked about this last week. This was the project that was really all systems go for a very long time, ended up going into turnaround, and that opened the door for Brian Singer to come in and pitch Superman Returns. Depending on who you talk to, Cavill either got very deep into the process or was actually cast as Superman when the entire movie collapsed under his feet. Henry Cavill did a screen test for Zack Snyder wearing Christopher Reeve's iconic Superman costume, and Snyder has claimed on social media and elsewhere that it was during this screen test that he knew instantly that Cavill would be his Man of Steel. And much like Christopher Reeve and Brandon Routh before him, Henry Cavill also understood the gravity of the role he had just taken on and the fact that he was inheriting a legacy. The people who were wanting to get autographs or photographs were enormous fans of the character. They look at me in a certain way which makes me realize the responsibility that is on my shoulders and how important it is to these people that I do this right. This is now as much a lifestyle choice as it is a career choice. As Lois Lane, Oscar nominee Amy Adams was cast, and Snyder set out to give audiences a version of Lois Lane that was far more proactive and more driven than any version seen on screen before. One of the important things when we were conceiving the film itself was to create a Lois that was intelligent, uh, a go-getter, a good reporter. To play Zod, the Kryptonian general made famous by Terrence Stamp in Superman 2, Snyder chose Michael Shannon, who was not known for his roles in big blockbuster films. He was mainly known for roles in smaller movies like Take Shelter and Revolutionary Road. Shannon realized when meeting Snyder for the first time that he wouldn't be required to audition for the part, that the part was being offered to him right off the page. And this surprised even him. I'm like, can you like kind of get anyone to do this? <laughs> He's like, yeah, but I, yeah. I was like, hey man, there's no skin off my nose. You think, <laughs> you think this is the way it should go? Sure, I'll give it a shot. 
while Shannon was drawn to the story of General Zod, he did make one request of Zack Snyder, and that was to not have to wear the motion capture body costume that so many actors in superhero films had to wear. He wanted to wear a real outfit. Sadly, this was not a request that Snyder was able to fulfill. He and I had talked, and he had asked me whether or not he was going to have armor on in the movie. And I said, oh, of course you're going to have real armor in the movie. And he was like, oh, great, because I don't want to look like an idiot in the pajamas. Uh, so it's hard to be like fierce and intimidating when you're basically wearing like a, a jester outfit. Uh, so thanks for making it even more difficult than it already was. Rounding out the cast were Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White, editor of the Daily Planet, Kevin Costner and Diane Lane as Jonathan and Martha Kent, and Russell Crowe as Jor-El, Superman's father on Krypton. The first thing that's noticeably different when you watch Man of Steel is the depth and breadth of what they're showing you of Krypton. This is not the 1978 version, very sterile, confined to a few chambers and anterooms. You see the entire planet, its wildlife, the scenery. You really get a feel for what this world was like. You also actually see the attempted coup by General Zod, and this this was a series of events that Michael Shannon really enjoyed because it allowed him to play out some fantasies of his own that he'd had over the years. I've oftentimes daydreamed about having the opportunity to walk into the office of the government and tell them how I think things should go. So uh, Zod, because he's a general, is able to do that. I think the Krypton sequences are a great way to start this film off. You you see that this was a completely alien world. It wasn't just a little more scientifically advanced than the world that we know. And another thing that I like in seeing what Zod is doing, you have the fact that the destruction of Krypton and Zod's attempt to take over the planet are tied together. The planet is dying not because of a star, but because of the Kryptonians' own negligence, because of their own arrogance. These lawmakers, with their endless debates, have led Krypton to ruin. And if your forces prevail, you'll be the leader of nothing. Then join me. And you really have Inzad and Jarrell, two people that have a basic commonality in purpose. When you link those two characters together, it brings a lot more into the movie later on between Zod and Kal-El, Jor-El's son. And this commonality between the two characters is something that Russell Crowe also found fascinating as he was preparing to play the character of Jor-El. There's a touch of madness to Jor-El. There's a touch of insanity in what he's doing and massive desperation. And Zod has a concept too in terms of, you know, keeping Krypton alive, and I think that's where the two of them agree. I also like that they make Krypton a very flawed society. It's not the utopia that we've seen in Richard Donner's version, which is the universe, really the only universe that we'd seen on the big screen at this time. Here you have a very fundamentally flawed species that is at the heart of their own destruction. We exhausted our natural resources. As a result, our planet's core became unstable. Jor-El doesn't just save Kal-El to Earth to save him from the destruction of Krypton. He sends him to Earth to save us from the same mistakes that doomed his own planet to death and destruction. And it all ties back into that symbol of the House of El, that symbol of hope. The fact that Kal-El and Jor-El both represent this hope in a future that could be free from the mistakes that even a society as advanced as Krypton has made. When we talk about the changing mythology of Superman, this is a change that I actually like. It's much less simplistic. It's much more complicated. It allows for more layered characterization. And I think it really adds a lot of depth and beauty to the farewell that Jor-El has when he's sending his his son away. Goodbye, my son. Mom. Hopes and dreams travel with you. 
Following this, the movie rolls out a little bit non-linearly as far as telling the story of Clark Kent on Earth. So let's unwind that a little bit and take these a little bit in order. We see young Clark growing up in Smallville, Kansas. And this is where some of the more controversial changes to the mythology take place. But let's get to what I like first. The first thing being, of course, uh, Jonathan and Martha Kent, played by Diane Lane and Kevin Costner. I think these are two great performances, and I think it is the most complete and interesting version of Superman's Earth parents that we've ever gotten in a movie. Can I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. The scene where young Clark is in school and he starts experiencing his powers for the first time, there's an element of body horror there, but I also like the design of it. And in watching the behind-the-scenes materials on the film, it turns out that there's a very unexpected 80s template for how this scene in particular was designed. It is also reminiscent of the John Carpenter movie, They Live, which we looked at many, many times to get the teacher and the little kids to look just that, you know, John Carpenter scary. Diane Lane does such great work as Martha, really in all of these movies, every iteration and every version of them. But there's such an empathy and a warmth to her, the way that she talks to her son through the door when he locks himself in the closet after he first begins getting the surge of unreal powers. The world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. Just, um... Focus on my voice. I think Diane Lane also infuses Martha with a sense of dread and a sense of inevitability because her son is still an extraterrestrial. There is a part of him that will always be alien. And the more that he develops these abilities, the more that she knows that he's going to have to reckon someday with the consequences of these abilities in his life. But she masks that underneath. She plays that a, a very low tempo for a lot of the movie. And it's I think it's a really strong performance from her. And it's something that she herself acknowledged when she talks about developing the character of Martha Kent. I really show up to protect him from the potential of being or feeling ganged up on, bullied, misunderstood. Being the mother of Clark, uh, Martha has to sort of be always at the ready for such a phone call. Jonathan Kent's character, played by Kevin Costner, goes through some changes that you would call a little more radical and I don't think it's really much of a contest that the most controversial one of these isn't a conversation he has with the teenage Clark Kent after he rescues a school bus that goes over a bridge. He saves the lives of all of his classmates, but at the same time exposes what he can do to other people. And there's a suggestion by Jonathan that really sits not very well with a lot of people. What was I supposed to do? Just let him die? Maybe. For me, it's not so much of an issue of would Jonathan Kent say that, because this is a movie, these are new creators, they can take the characters in any direction that they want. It's more of a character for me of should Jonathan Kent say that? Can I reckon with a version of the Superman story where Superman's father on Earth essentially says, you should let innocent people die? I, I don't know if this is uh, an ethos that I can sign on to in any way, shape, or form. At the same time, you have to temper that with the fact that, as a character, Jonathan Kent himself is very conflicted because he fears for his son, and he knows that he's going to have a very difficult choice down the line. He knows that he's here for a reason, but he doesn't want to push his son into what that reason might be. You're going to have to make a choice. A choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. 
I think a lot of this comes down to a belief when you're watching this movie of, do you think that the character believes what he's saying, or do you think that the movie believes what he's saying? And I've had this discussion about lots of movies, not just this one. I think the lines blur a little bit. Jonathan Kent, as a character, is ready to commit to this belief 100%, going so far as to allow himself to die in a tornado when Clark could use his superhuman abilities to save him, but again, would expose who he was to a group of onlookers. When I first saw the movie, I, I understood the concept behind this. I think it presents a bit of a logic problem when you think critically. I think there are many ways that Clark could have saved Jonathan without just exposing that he was Superman and could do all of these wonderful things to everybody. That's just an ingrown problem with the movie, but it is a big, bold, operatic at times movie, and this is the way they chose to go with it. What I really have the most problem with, however, is this take on the character, and I'm not going to say it's right or wrong. I'm just going to say it's not for me. I'm I'm not a big fan of this hands-off approach to Jonathan Kent, who's basically saying like, well, you're going to be good or you're going to be bad, and I'm not really going to point you in any one direction. That's a decision you're going to have to make for yourself. You just have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be, Clark, because whoever that man is, good character or bad, he's... It's going to change the world. But ultimately, it doesn't wreck the movie for me. It is one of the things that I get hung up on, but it's not the thing that really I have the most issues with as I watch the film for the first time and as I keep rewatching it over the years. Adult Clark is pretty much lost when we meet him. He's grappling to find his place in the world, living what I like to call the Incredible Hulk lifestyle, drifting from town to town, picking up odd job after odd job, doing good where he can and leaving as soon as his secret is exposed. Then the military discovers an ancient Kryptonian craft that's buried in ice. It's a relic of a time when Krypton was looking to colonize and expand their population around the galaxy. And it's at this Kryptonian ship where Clark, number one, first meets Lois Lane, who has been tipped off to its existence and is there to figure out what exactly is going on and number two meets the holographic projection of his father Jor-El who tells him who he really is and where he comes from. You're as much a child of Earth now as you are of Krypton. You can embody the best of both worlds. The sequence where we first see Superman donning his suit with the Hans Zimmer score, with the voiceover from Russell Crowe, is some of my favorite Superman stuff that's ever been put to film. I'll put that up there with just about any sequence from any other Superman movie. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun, Cal. Watching him learn to fly while hearing Russell Crowe talk about the potential of a superhero, that you can be a beacon of hope and a harbinger of a bright future. This is great stuff, and it stands in contrast, stark contrast, to some of the other things that come later, which I think is at the heart of some of my biggest issues with the movie. But that doesn't change the fact that this sequence is particularly and spectacularly well done. I also want to talk about the Superman suit, which I actually dig. I think it was a really good idea to turn it from a uniform that was made here on Earth to something that is part of the native Kryptonian garb. The S is the crest of the family, which they had toyed with a little bit in the Richard Donner version or the Richard Donner universe, but hadn't really made official. I just think that it's a cool look. The design changes don't bother me. And being able to change the costume was something that was obviously important to Zack Snyder, who openly has said that he struggled with any concept of a comic book accurate Superman outfit. I probably looked at hundreds of versions with the underwear. I mean, I tried. He has a red cape. He has an S on his chest. He has a blue suit. 
He has red boots. He's Superman. It also doesn't hurt that Henry Cavill can wear this damn costume. He looks like a great Superman. And this is another important factor that Snyder has acknowledged. There's a difference between dressing up like Superman and being Superman. It's a magical thing. It's like a glass slipper. Henry put the costume on and he was Superman. Henry Cavill also sensed a change both in himself and in the people around him the first time he wore the Superman suit in front of the crew, as he explains in this Q&A portion of the Vero Superman watch-along that was, in the end, an announcement last year that the Snyder Cut was actually going to happen. I stepped outside and everyone kind of turned and looked, and you had that moment where I didn't feel ridiculous. It felt it felt empowering. It was it was a remarkable experience. It was something which I will never forget. Even with my qualms about Jonathan Kent's outlook on Superman and his powers, I was and am still on board with the movie at this point. It really hasn't lost me at all. And it's largely because Man of Steel does do a great job of establishing Superman at the beginning as something that I've always thought that Superman was. A beacon, a light, somebody who is great but doesn't think that greatness is confined to him. Someone who wants to share his powers, maybe not his actual physical powers, but the power for positivity and goodness to the human race. And there is great setup in this movie for this version of Superman. Some of the most special heroes we've had throughout history, ancient and modern, represent hope and the ability to conquer adversity against all odds. Superman was designed for that very reason. Superman's activation of the crashed Kryptonian ship, although it provides him his suit and his actual origins, has the side effect of summoning General Zod to Earth. You led us here, Captain. And now it's within your power to save what remains of your race. Zod's arrival on Earth, I think, is handled also very effectively. It is really creepy. I like the fact that they show the arrival of the ships from the human points of view. You see it from the perspective of a character on the ground, or you see it on television. It adds a realism. And then it's a very creepy message, this thing that Zod sends to everybody on Earth. You are not in multiple languages. I also like that it's not that everybody on the Earth speaks English. Zod broadcasts in every language, which led Michael Shannon to do some linguistic feats that he never thought that he'd have to do. I got to learn some new languages. I guarantee you it's the first and last time I will ever speak Nepalese. I'm pretty confident of that. We will continue our breakdown of Man of Steel in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Shudder. Shudder is the streaming service with the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series, and originals from Hollywood favorites and cult classics to original series and critically acclaimed genre films that you won't find anywhere else streaming uncut and commercial-free right to your favorite devices. And they now have a bona fide Golden Globe nominee. Shudder's La Llorona was recently nominated for the Best Foreign Language Feature Film at the Golden Globes. It also won Best Film at the 2019 Venice Film Festival and was an official selection to Sundance 2020. It blends together the terror of myth and reality into a devastating expose of the genocidal atrocities against the Mayan community in Guatemala. But La Llorona is not the only thing on Shudder, far from it. You also get titles like The Dark and the Wicked, After Midnight, which is available in the U.S. only, Clive Barker's Nightbreed, and Vampire's Kiss starring Nicolas Cage. For any Schmodown fan or Schmodown competitor, Nicolas Cage is on that wheel now, and you can find Vampire's Kiss 
right there on Shudder. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. And Shudder has the fastest growing hand-curated selection of horror and mystery around, which is why people are calling Shudder the Netflix for horror. And you will have unlimited access to stream these films ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Chromecast, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, Android devices. Pretty much anything you've got, you can find Shudder right there. I'm a newbie horror fan, so I appreciate the curation of Shudder, and I also appreciate, like I mentioned, that it's not just to watch horror movies. It's a great research tool for a guy like me that's involved in the schmodown. This is a little bit of inside intelligence, but I don't mind telling you. I sat down the other night. I had my pen and pencil ready. I fired up Vampire's Kiss, which I couldn't find anywhere else. It was right there on Shudder for me. Not only did I get some great notes on a Nicolas Cage movie, I watched one of the craziest performances in any movie that I've ever seen. And that's what I love about so many of these things that you can find on Shudder. It's not just the mainstream horror films that you can find anywhere else. It is some of the most unique entertainment in this genre. And Shudder is able to curate so many different kinds of it that you never get the same experience twice. So what are you waiting for? Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like Color Out of Space, Host, The Mortuary Collections, plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit Creepshow TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shudder free for 30 days, free, Go to Shudder.com and use the promo code MOVIES. That's Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, and use the promo code MOVIES for 30 free days. If you're a horror fan, Shudder is the thing you've been waiting for. Go check them out now, and I want to thank Shudder for sponsoring the show. I have a duty to my people, and I will not allow anyone to prevent me from carrying it out. It's around this time in the movie that I can pretty much pinpoint where I peak and where it starts to fall off for me. And my peak point for the film is after Superman has been brought onto Zod's ship and he sees the vision of what Zod wants to do, which is to basically destroy the Earth, kill the entire population, use the Codex and the Genesis Chamber to rebirth the Kryptonian people and turn Earth into a new Krypton because he believes Kryptonians to be superior, basically a master race that can cleanse the race that lives on Earth, we see uh, Lois Lane escaping from the ship. She's in danger. Superman speaks to the holographic projection of his father for the last time, who gives him one last moment of hope. You can save a cow. You can save all of them. After Superman saves Lois, Zod goes to confront Superman's mother, Martha Kent, and Superman engages him in battle along with some other Kryptonians, including Zod's lieutenants. And this is where I, I pretty much jump off because I think that the movie sacrifices character from spectacle from here pretty much all the way to the end. And it's not just that it's all action because I don't mind all action. It's that the way that it unfolds undercuts what we learn of Superman because they go into Smallville and there's just a ruinous battle in Superman's hometown. I mean, this place gets wrecked, and anytime you have super beings that are going to fight each other, that is bound to happen. But what I don't like is that at several points during this battle, Superman himself very callously throws people through things, punches people into things, there's grain silos that explode, he throws them into moving trains. 
it feels like a version of Superman that doesn't really care about the collateral damage that he's causing. And this stands in stark contrast to what we have been told in this movie, not just in our own preconceived notions about Superman, but in this movie about Superman's mission on Earth to save humanity, to inspire humanity. Here he makes it very easy for humanity to hate him because to the person who's just watching the battle, it looks like he is causing as much destruction as the next person. As a matter of fact, it's this misconception that leads directly to 2016's Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Yes, it is plot, and yes, it is a story point, but I think it stands in contradiction to what we have established, and I don't believe that this version of Superman would be so callous or would be so reckless, and that's why I jump off. Yes, it is a lot of action, and it gets a bit mind-numbing after a while, but it's also because I don't think that the actions that we're seeing necessarily match what we've been told for the last hour and a half. The fact that you possess a sense of morality, and we do not gives us an evolutionary advantage. From here, we move to an even bigger action sequence where General Zod unleashes a world engine that will terraform Earth into becoming Krypton by bombarding the surface of the planet with these huge gravity waves and essentially laying waste to Metropolis. And despite what you think about this action sequence, I think you have to admit that they do give Michael Shannon's General Zod some pretty badass supervillain lines in this film. I will harvest the codex from your son's corpse and I will rebuild Krypton atop his bones. When we talk about this part of the movie, I like the sequence where Superman dismantles the world engine in the Indian Ocean, basically summoning this power that he didn't know, even know he had in himself, reaching his ultimate self. I like the decision point where Zod says that Superman has to choose between destroying the ship and destroying Krypton, and Superman says Krypton had their chance. But on top of that, there are issues that I think are even bigger than the ones I had with the Smallville fight regarding what Superman does. For example, after he brings General Zod's ship down, Metropolis is, is ruined. I mean, there is just a wasteland. It's literally been turned to dust. And we've seen the effects that it's had on people. There are thousands upon thousands of people that I'm sure are trapped, calling for help. This is all stuff that Superman can hear. This is all stuff that he's aware of. And yet we get this beat just after he believes that he's defeated General Zod, where the city is lying in ruins around him, where he decides to make out with Lois Lane and they exchange some cute lines. You know they say it's all downhill after the first kiss. I, I'm pretty sure it only counts when you kiss a human. And the fact that at no point does he really make any attempt to save any of these civilians I just think it's a bit tone deaf on the part of the writers. I think they prioritize this romantic moment between Superman and Lois and this cute romantic line or whatever else. It doesn't fit the character that we've been shown. And that is my problem with the third act of this film. I think it does a wonderful job of setting up the character of Superman in Acts 1 and 2 and then doesn't do anything with that setup in Act 3 and in fact acts in contradiction to that setup. We also have a repeat of what happened in Smallville, again on an even bigger scale, as Superman fights General Zod in and around Metropolis. Superman isn't just used as an instrument to do damage, he himself causes so much damage. And I think that you could have fixed these qualms fairly easily and not had to change a whole lot if you just add a couple of beats where Superman tries to change the venue of the fight but Zod doesn't let him. There is a brief segment where the two characters go out into space and if Superman had initiated this, then I think it would 
would have undercut a lot of these issues, but it's not Superman. It's Zod who punches them up into space and then brings them all back down to Metropolis. This is where I think a little more care in the design of these action sequences could have done a lot for the character. It doesn't take much, really. Four or five little tweaks here and there. Superman trying to do something, Superman hearing something that I think would have almost totally diffused these problems. But when you have this kind of thing happen, it makes you feel like there was a lack of care. And that's where I kind of stop, start jumping off board on things. Not where I don't necessarily agree with what's going on, but where I see a bit of a lack of care on the part of whoever's designing these action sequences to keep the character and the story alive. In doing my research for this episode, I actually found a review of this movie that that put my thoughts uh, on the finale of this film uh, even better than I could, and that is British film critic Mark Commode, who had this to say when he was reviewing the film on BBC Radio back in 2013. I think the last act is just like being shouted at so much that I just I stopped being interested and and so consequently there is an air of disappointment because it was just everything turned up to you know diggity bottom I've just said before to 11 stupid the weirdest or maybe most ironic thing is that the thing that most people seem to have the biggest problem with is the one that I really don't have a huge problem with, especially as I've sat with the movie and thought about it over the years since I've seen it, and that is Superman killing General Zod by snapping his neck. Because here, you do set up this conflict that I think they should have done more throughout this entire battle. They're in the train station, Zod has his heat vision going, and he basically says, you have to kill me or I'm going to kill them. And I'm not just going to kill them. If you leave me alive, I'm going to kill millions and millions of people on this world that you love. And Superman is put in an impossible position and has to perform an action that is completely antithetical to his being, but that he has to. It's almost like Zod's last revenge because he knows he's forcing Superman into doing something that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life. So I actually have more problem with the action earlier, which a lot of people don't really care about, and less problem with how Superman dispatches Zod, because I truly do see that you have put Superman in a position here where he has no choice but to do what he does, or let innocent people die. If you love these people so much, you can mourn for them. Superman's obviously distraught by this violent act, and this is another what if when I think about what I think about this movie and, and the franchise in general. I wish that we could have gotten a proper second Superman movie. This is really the only solo Superman movie that we've gotten in this current iteration of the DCEU. I wish we could have seen more of him grappling with this as he is the hero in Metropolis that we all know because that is where this movie leaves him. We end the movie, he's Clark Kent, he's got the glasses, he's in the Daily Planet. He is the Superman that we know and love. And this was an intentional move by Zack Snyder when structuring the film. I wanted to make a movie that in the very last moment reconnected you to what Superman was all about. It reminds me a little bit of the rebooted Star Trek franchise where the end of the first two films, Star Trek 2009 and Star Trek Into Darkness, they ended basically the same way. You have the crew on the bridge of the Enterprise setting out into space. They've gone through great trial and tribulation, but now they are ready to go and be the crew that you already knew. Bones, buckle up. Come on, Bones. It's going to be fun. 
Except that every time you join the next movie, they're in the middle of some other huge emotional crisis because now there's another terrible thing that's going on and you never really get into that groove of, no, this is actually how they operate as a unit. This is how they operate every day. In a weird way, it reminds me of how they treated Ross and Rachel on Friends. I rewatched the whole series last year because we were doing an honest trailer over at Screen Junkies and something that I realized is that the writers always seem to be able to write them either wanting to be together or broken up, but they can never really write them together as a couple. And that's how I felt with Superman and with Star Trek and a lot of these other franchises, particularly the ones that have, that have rebooted to be a little bit more gritty or to have a little bit more you know, darkness to them, which is that they can write the characters in pain, they can write them getting together, they can write them breaking apart, but they can't really get their heads around what happens when they're just normal. It's always about the pain and the angst and very little about the joy uh, and the just beingness of these different iconic characters and situations. And that's what I felt about Superman. Superman in this iteration of the DCEU. There have been several versions now, several films about Superman struggling to be Superman, but not actually being Superman. That's where I wish we could get because I love Henry Cavill as Superman. I think that he is a great Superman and I keep waiting for that movie where the movie opens and he just is Superman, not doesn't want to be Superman, not is being attacked for being Superman, not is dead and has to be resurrected as Superman, but he's just Superman. And we see how he deals with a big crisis that comes up as Superman. There is no one objective take or one objective feeling on a character like Superman. He is something that has meant so much to so many different people and in so many different ways. And I think that's what we all struggle with as these are now the driving force behind so much of our entertainment is that nobody brings their same interpretation to all of these characters, which means that no one movie or no one piece of art is going to interpret those characters in a way that pleases everybody. When this first came out, I, I felt very strongly about different things in, Ma in Man of Steel, and I thought very differently about them as well. I don't think I gave the movie as much credit as I do now, uh, but I also think that I'm a little more entrenched in the things that I, that I don't like about the film. At the same time, I also recognize that it's just a movie, and these are the ways that I feel about the character, and I don't have any ownership over how Superman should be portrayed. As people join the conversation, for a lot of people, particularly younger people, and I'm not an old man, I'm in my late 30s, uh, but I do have some perspective because I've been doing this long enough to remember how I reacted to this stuff 10 or 15 years ago. It does seem much more important, especially when you're younger, because these characters shape a lot of people's lives. They shape how they view pop culture. They shape how they view the world. And when you see something that you either like or you don't like, and somebody has an, a differing opinion, then a lot of times it feels like they're coming after your worldview. I think that, that Superman as a character is a hopeful character and one who himself was very uh, open about being okay with the world, debating what his purpose was. His thing was always just like, hey, you know what? I'm Superman. And if you doubt, if you doubt that I'm here to do good, then I'm going to show you that I am here to do good. I'm here to help, but it has to be on my own terms. And you have to convince Washington of that. What makes you think they'd listen? I don't know, General. Guess I'll just have to trust you. <laughs> 
Man of Steel was released in North America on June 14th, 2013, and it grossed over $100 million in its opening weekend. It went on to gross over $668 million worldwide. That was an improvement by about $275 million over the worldwide gross of Superman Returns back in 2006, despite the fact that Man of Steel had a lower budget. It was still high, around $225 million, but not as high as the $270 million that Superman Returns had cost. So this is obviously a winner for DC and a winner for Warner Brothers because they brought in a movie at a lower cost that had almost doubled what the previous film had brought in worldwide. I saw Man of Steel on opening weekend on Sunday, June 16th, 2013. I still have the ticket stub at the Vista Theater in Los Angeles. And while I was a little more strong in some of my feelings, my overall impression was the same. I was on board for the first two acts of the film and then just felt pummeled by the third act and really disengaged by the end of the movie. Critical reaction was mixed, not just with fans, but with critics themselves. Some people were hailing Zack Snyder's vision as a refreshing new take on the Superman mythology, Others had the same kinds of problems that Mark Kermode and myself had where there were some promising aspects, but it was overwhelmed by an over-reliance on special effects and explosions. Amongst fans, I do think Man of Steel was a turning point in how fans viewed movies, defended movies. I was working at Screen Junkies at the time, and I remember when we put out the honest trailer for this movie, and this is really where it kicked into high gear, we had takes on movies that people didn't disagree with, and people would tell us before, but there was something different about the reaction, because our honest trailer for Man of Steel wasn't particularly positive. Prepare for a mopey, violent reboot guaranteed to depress adults and frighten small children. When I look back at my experience with fandoms, I definitely see Man of Steel as a turning point because this was a passionate audience unlike any I had ever seen, and that continues to this day with properties in the DC Universe and beyond. For whatever reason, Man of Steel attracted an audience, and I think perhaps it had to do with Christopher Nolan and the fact that he had a very rabid fan base and still does have a very rabid fan base. His involvement with the project, I think, crystallized a lot of people around it. Zack Snyder has a very definitive way of making films that I think the people that really attach themselves to it feel very passionately about. Whatever it is, there was a hardcore fandom around Man of Steel that was ready to go to battle for this movie. And it is similar to the fandoms that we have since seen uh, both for and against movies like The Last Jedi and Alita Battle Angel. And yes, Justice League, both against 2017's Justice League and for Zack Snyder's Justice League. It was this kind of fan movement that eventually led to the release of the Snyder Cut. I really do think things would have gone differently if there had been just one more Superman film before Batman v Superman. I think some of the world building that was put into that movie could have been put into Man of Steel 2 or whatever you want to call it. I think we would have connected more closely with that character. You could have explored a lot more facets, even his conflicted relationship with the world that you really have to crunch into the first half of Batman v Superman. I hold out a lot of hope for Henry Cavill's Superman. I don't really know what the possibility is of continuing the Snyder storyline, but I'm hoping that there may be enough public goodwill for the executives at Warner Brothers to say, we are going to continue on the legacy of this Superman, even if you spin it into a separate universe where Henry Cavill is Superman, but in a disconnected storyline. I think that you've established so many different ways that you can do this. I have hope that we will see Cavill again because I think that there is greatness in him as Superman that he has not yet been able to fully unleash. 
every single modern cinematic Superman, from Christopher Reeve to Brandon Routh to Henry Cavill, has left an indelible mark on the role. And I think you could also say of all three that the failings that they may have had as a character weren't on their shoulders, but were on the shoulders of the material, either a sagging number of franchise sequels or perhaps a misguided attempt to continue the legacy of those sequels, or in the case of Man of Steel, a very controversial to some stance on the character that could have used some more room to breathe and find a life of its own. In the tradition of the House of L, I remain hopeful that we will get another version of Superman that more people can get behind because he is an important character. He's an important character in American mythology. I think he's an important character in world mythology. And I think that much like Superman, who came to Earth because he needed a world, the world needs Superman, both on screen and off. As always, I like to wrap up the show by talking about the special features on the disc that I looked at this week. Uh, Man of Steel is the one that we're talking about. And this disc, it's a two-disc collection. One of them has the movie. The other one has the special features, etc. on it. And it's a pretty good collection. On the disc with the movie, you have a documentary called Strong Characters, Legendary Roles, where you have the different characters and actors talking about the takes on these comic book characters that you see in the film. There's also another one called All Out Action, which is about the preparation of both the actors and the execution on set of the different action sequences in the movie. There's a great look at how they built the world of Krypton for this movie to make it something like we've never seen before. There's a really cool two-minute animated short that was released on the disc in conjunction with the 75th anniversary of Superman. And this is really confusing. On this disc, there's also a featurette with no disclaimer whatsoever, that's just about shooting the Hobbit films in New Zealand. It's been thrilling to go back and, and go up and down both the main islands of New Zealand. It's like I put in a different disc. There's no like, hey, this is a look at another one of our properties from Warner Brothers. There's just a Hobbit special feature on the Man of Steel disc. My guess is this came out around 2013, 2014. The Hobbit movies were sort of still winding their way through theaters, but it's the first time that I've ever really found a special feature for a different movie just sitting in there with all the special features for the movie that you're just watching. Behind us here is Mount Cook, which is New Zealand's highest mountain. That's where Sir Edmund Hillary um, trained to climb Mount Everest. The second disc has a really great special feature. It's called Journey of Discovery, which is kind of a hybrid of a watch-along and a behind-the-scenes documentary. You're, you'll be watching the movie. Different creatives from the film will pop on. Sometimes you'll cut away to a behind-the-scenes thing and then go back to the movie. But it's not like you have to click buttons on your remote. It's very well done, very well edited. Sometimes there's side-by-side -side shots of the scene as it played out with behind-the-scenes footage that was shot on the set. And there's a lot of fun little special moments. You get some great behind-the-scenes moments. Have you been up here, Zach? Up there? No. It's beautiful. What do you see? Corn. Corn. One of the highlights is that Michael Shannon pops in really only two or three times, but seems very befuddled by what exactly is going on. And I love the way that he just kind of walks into the room and describes what's happening. He's like, I don't know what I'm doing. You want to? Let's just watch the movie. It, it really is great. Well, I'm back. And when you know it, me and Superman have gotten into a bit of a predicament. So I guess we can do one or two things. Either I can keep standing here and talking about my experience shooting the battle, or you can actually watch the rest of the battle. 
There's also a feature at inside of this that I wish had been broken out into its own feature, which is about the score of the movie with Hans Zimmer. You talk to Snyder about his philosophy with the movie and the challenges of doing a Superman movie after the John Williams score had become so recognizable and attached to Superman. Usually on a movie, you try to sort of do one thing. You, you try to sort of aim for one thing that nobody's ever heard before, you know? And then on this one, we started sort of to pile up the ideas. And it was really great. You also see some of the way that Hans Zimmer developed the score and the way that he recorded the score, including this clip where he just put 20 drummers in one room. I had this idea of getting 20 drummers into this room. But I thought, what if we could get the greatest drummers and, you know, melt them into one giant machine of energy. And we did that. It must be kind of cool to be Hans Zimmer. Let's not lie to ourselves. The other special feature on this disc is an in-universe TV special about the planet Krypton produced as if we were watching TV in Metropolis. I think it's kind of cool. I don't think it really adds anything to the mythology, but it's fun, and I like these kind of special features. It's the kind of stuff that you don't get anymore, even on physical discs, because the special features that you do get uh, are really kind of bare bones. I like these fun little things that you used to get on Blu-ray discs. Krypton's population at the time of Superman's birth was 1.4 billion approximately one-seventh of Earth's current population. And that wraps up our look at Man of Steel and our look at the evolution of Superman cinematically. Thank you so much for joining us all this month. Because there are five Wednesdays in March, we actually have next week off, but we will be back in April in two weeks to talk about Best Picture winners. With the Oscar ceremony pushed to April, we're going to be looking at some of the most memorable Best Picture winners of all time, a collection of great movies, Titanic, The Departed, Rocky, and The Godfather. I'm excited to talk about all four of these movies. And I'm excited for you to find all my movies at its new home. We've been talking for a very long time with my partners at Skybound and the Schmodown Entertainment Network, and we remain very proud partners with each other about how to grow this show and get it in front of the most eyeballs possible. And we've decided to take this show from the Schmodown Entertainment Network, and we appreciate all of the loyal viewers here. And thank you to each and every one of you that's watched the show week in and week out. But the show will be moving from SEN to my channel on YouTube, youtube.com slash Movies. It will still be a weekly show. Pretty much nothing changes except where you get to see it on YouTube. If you're an audio listener of the show, you don't have to do anything differently. It is still going to be uploaded to the same feed. You don't have to subscribe anywhere else. This only affects those who are watching the show on YouTube. And I do hope that all of you who have watched the show from the beginning will follow it over to my YouTube channel. So you can do two things for me right now. Number one is remember that in two weeks time, I will be over on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Movies. The other thing you can do is go down to the description below and subscribe to the audio version of the show just to make sure that you have an uninterrupted all my movies experience. I'm excited about this new phase and this new era for the show. And I will be excited to see all of you in two weeks on my channel to talk about some of the best best picture winners of all time this is going to be a super exciting discussion and i can't wait to dig into this we're going to be starting with titanic that's the movie we're going to be talking about in two weeks we're going to have a great time but until then it's time to go back on the shelf i'll see you next time